Good morning, everybody, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Don't think we've got any visitors unless they're hiding, but if you are visiting or you've not been for a while, it's lovely to see you. Everything that you need to follow the service is on the printed order of service, and um, a lot of it will also appear on the screen. Please note that the Kelvin Suite, which is the one across the way, is not available today. There is the op opportunity for praying with craft for anyone who would find that interesting in the Clevedon Suite, which is down into the main lobby and just to the left um, of the, the main reception area. Follow Holly, who is facilitating that, which will be a time of silent prayer. Um, for those who prefer a traditional sermon, then just stay foot, stay put. Or maybe I'll just go down there and Holly <laughs> can stay up here. Um, whatever you offer, please do stay and have a cup of tea or coffee with us after the service. Can I just remind the trustees that there will be a short meeting immediately after this service in the Clevedon Suite. So that's the one down the stairs and around the corner. There is no evening service today. I'm not aware of any specific family news, so it's just a reminder that next Sunday morning we will be here again in the hotel. So these are all our notices. I kind of felt I ought to say intimations after all these years, really. Our call to worship this morning comes from the first letter of John. Dear friends... Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so let's sing that now. God is love, his the care, tending each everywhere. God is good, God is truth. God is beauty, praise him.
For those who remember the awards days when we had hymn books, <laughs> and they have to be quite old hymn books because I've got some new hymn books at home and they don't do this. But in the old hymn books, if you opened them up, inside the front cover and inside the back cover were some prayers. There was a general confession, a general thanksgiving, and a number of blessings. And they're all Anglican, actually. But you'd find them in Methodist hymn books and Baptist hymn books and Congregational hymn books and, for all I know, Church of Scotland hymn books that far back. And the idea was they were always there as a kind of fallback. And I have to confess, this week I was thinking, what, what can I pray that's different than I usually pray? And I thought, actually, do you know what? I don't know. And then I thought, we're actually going to be hearing some words written by an Anglican as part of our worship. So why not use this old prayer, a general thanksgiving, which is on your sheets. It will also appear on the, on the screen if anybody prefers to read it from there. And it's in the alternative service book version. So we're talking about 1970s English. I couldn't actually find the common worship version um, without buying it, and I wasn't about to do that. So we'll say this together. And then at the end of that, we will say the Lord's Prayer in whatever form, whatever language, whatever version feels the most normal and natural for each one of us. So let's pray together. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you most humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness to us and to all people. We bless you for our creation, start off by sharing some stories. Um, I'm going to read one to you and then we're going to, in a little bit after that, hear some, some real life stories. And then we're going to split into two options. So you can stay here for the sermon or you can follow Holly downstairs for a, a time to spend uh, together in silent prayer for those who like to have something in their hands while they're praying. I don't think we have any children, but I was, well, little children. I was going to say it's not suitable for little children, but there's stuff for the back if, if any little children suddenly appear. 
So we're going to begin with a story about a mouse called Harry. Does anybody know the story of Harry, the happy mouse? Okay, Harry, the happy mouse. A children's picture book about kindness. Or as it says on that one, an Amazon number one bestseller, but hey. Harry, the happy mouse, was thinking about good things. Under a bridge, he lived with his wife. What a lovely day. Wow, this is the life. Every summer's evening, after something to eat, he strolled along the stream to see who he'd meet. The frogs, they did croak. And the birds, they did tweet. The dogs, they did bark. And the sheep, they did bleat. Across the stream, with a step and a jump, an extra long leap, and even a bump. Harry's favourite part of his long summer walks was meeting other animals and having long talks. One evening, whilst walking along, he found a sad frog who was stuck on a log. Help me, I'm stuck, the frog shouted down. Quickly, happy mouse, I don't want to drown. When I jumped up, it didn't look high. Now I'm up here, right up in the sky. With a slightly fake Essex accent. Quick as a flash, Harry jumped, Harry climbed to the top. Brave as can be, no thought of the drop. Look here, dear frog, climb on my back. I'll get us back down, back down on the track. Harry climbed down. The frog jumped with glee. Thank you, kind mouse, for rescuing me. You shouldn't thank me, just help someone too. That'll be better for me and for you. But why, said the frog, that doesn't help you. If I help someone else, then who will help you? When you help someone else, it makes you feel grand. So when someone needs help, just give them a hand. Thank you, kind mouse. You've made my day. And if you don't mind, I'll be on my way. Whilst hopping back to his green lily pad, the frog saw a mole who was looking quite sad. What's wrong? said the frog. Why the big frown? This hole, said the mole. My son's fallen down. Oh dear, said the frog. Don't worry, Mrs. Mole, I will help you. The frog found a stick and the mole found some string. They made a great fishing rod to pull out that young thing. Baby Mole climbed out and his mum jumped with glee. Thank you, kind frog, for rescuing me. You shouldn't thank me, just help someone too. That'll be better for me and for you. But why, said the mole, that doesn't help you. If I help someone else, then who will help you? When you help someone else, it makes you feel grand. So when someone help needs help, just give them a hand. The mole carried on with her son in tow. The moonlight twinkled with a beautiful glow. Quickly, young man, you should be in bed, the mole said to her son, while resting his head. But wait, said the mole. Sorry, got the same voice as his mother. Whatever is that? Upside in a tree hung a very grumpy bat. Excuse me, Mr. Bat, why are you sad? Whatever it is, it can't be that bad. It is, said the bat with a cry and a quiver. It's my hat, you see. It fell in the river. 
Oh, no, said the mole. It looks like it's stuck. We'll get it back with a plan and some luck. Thanks, said the bat. But what can we do? It's, far too, it's way too far down for me and for you. The mole said, I'll hold my son and you hold me. We can't do it with one, but we might with three. The mole held her son and she held the bat. Before they knew it, they'd rescued the hat. What a great plan! The bat jumped with glee. Thank you, kind mole, for rescuing me. You shouldn't thank me, just help someone too. That'll be better for me and for you. But why, said the bat, that doesn't help you. If I help someone else, then who will help you? When you help someone else, it makes you feel grand. So when someone needs help, just give them a hand. Very well, said the bat. I'll make sure I do. Good night, Mrs. Mole, and to your son, too. Everyone's sleeping, cosy and snug. The cows and the birds and even the bugs. The very next day, Harry got home from his walk, but Harry was sad, not happy, not glad. What's wrong? asked his wife. Why the big frown? You're now normally so happy, but now you seem down. There's no one to help, said Harry the mouse. Not a frog, not a cat, not a mole or a grouse. When I help someone else, it makes me feel grand. But when there's no one to help, I can't lend a hand. Harry's wife said, come here, I have a surprise. Because you're so helpful, so kind and so wise. You see, Harry, that frog you helped, well, he helped a mole and also a cat. She helped a dog and also a rat. The dog helped an owl and the owl helped a bird. The bird helped a cow in a field. In fact, the whole herd. Now everyone's here just to see you, the frog, the mole and the bat too. All this kindness is spreading, you see. Now we're all happy, as happy can be. Wow, said Harry. Look at what I've done. It all started out by just helping one. I think his accent keeps changing, but never mind. <laughs> on the crest of the wave, on the wisp of the wind, Harry the happy mouse had done wonderful things. So let's remain seated as we sing again together.
one of the best-known uh, um, British people in the 20th century with a social justice or compassionate spirituality is Archbishop William Temple. And this is a photograph of him. I think he has a bit of the Dietrich Bonhoeffers about him, actually, but there you go. And I'm going to read to you a short extract from a book he wrote called Christianity and Social Order. The method of the church's impact upon society should be twofold. First, the church must announce Christian principles and point out where the existing social order is in conflict with them. Second, it must then pass on to Christian citizens acting in their civic capacities the task of reshaping the existing order in closer conformity to the principles. At this point, technical knowledge and practical judgments will be required. For example, if a bridge is to be built, the church may remind the engineer that it is his, sick, obligation to provide a safe bridge. It's not entitled to tell him how to build it or whether his design meets this requirement. A particular theologian may also be a competent engineer. In this case, he may be entitled to make a judgment on its safety. But he may do so because he is a competent engineer, not because he is a theologian. His theological skills have nothing whatsoever to do with it. This is a point of first-rate importance, and it's frequently misunderstood. If Christianity is to be true at all, it is a truth of universal application. All things should be done in the Christian spirit and in accordance with Christian principles. Then, say those who want to reform, produce your Christian solution for unemployment. But there are, neither is nor could be such a thing. The Christian faith does not by itself enable its members to see how a vast number of people within an intricate economic system will be affected by a particular economic or political idea. In that case, say those who want to uphold the status quo, keep off the turf. By your own confession, you're out of place here. Here, the church must reply, no, I cannot tell you what is the remedy, but I can tell you that a society with chronic unemployment is a diseased society. If you are not doing all you can to find the remedy, you are guilty before God. The church is likely to be attacked from both sides if it does its duty. It will be told it has become political when it has merely stated its principles and pointed out where they have been breached. The church will be told by advocates of particular policies that it is futile because it does not support theirs. If the church is to be faithful to its commission, it will ignore both sets of complaints and continue as far as it can to influence all citizens and to permeate all parties. So a principle in there about relating our faith to our everyday life. And I've invited Elaine and Graham, who have very graciously and kindly agreed, just to share very briefly how for them, in very different spheres, they relate their faith 
to their everyday working life. Thanks. Can you hear me if I'm, if I'm coming to you? So I believe really strongly that poverty is about justice, not about charity. And for the last 27 years now, which was a bit scary when I counted <laughs> it, um, I've worked alongside some of the poorest people in our society to try and bring about change, to say that poverty is neither inevitable nor is it acceptable. And for the last 10 years, I've worked with the Poverty Truth Commission, who recently have become the Poverty Truth Community. And that's a, a movement of people who bring two very different groups of people together, some of the poorest people in Scotland and some of the key influencers and policymakers within Scotland together. It brings them together, it has brought them together in commissions that have sat for a period of time, but also through mutual mentoring, through smaller conversations, and through, most importantly, friendships and relationships. And what we're about as a community now, we've, we've, last year we went through a period of change and decided what, what was it, what were the nuts and bolts of our values. We said, we are a movement <coughs> of people, led by people experiencing poverty, to bring about change. In the last few years, my job has become more about managing that movement. And as you can imagine, if you're, if you're managing a movement rather than an organisation, it's a bit like trying to nail jelly to the wall. So really, my job is about holding. It's about holding a safe space for those people to have those conversations, which can be really, really difficult and very intimate. It's also about holding that safe space from outside people who try and take it over and try and make it be something else. But at the heart of that job, it's about listening. And I, when I was thinking about this, I thought that um, if actually that part of my job ever disappeared, then the Poverty Truth community would become exactly what it stands against. It wouldn't be about the people anymore. It wouldn't be about the stories. So when I listen to people, sometimes it's in a big room. Sometimes it's as big as this. Sometimes it's in smaller conversations. Sometimes it's in a one-to-one, -one, sometimes it's in a snatched moment or a phone call. But all the time it's about listening at a really, really deep level. It's about listening to what people are telling me, and it's about listening to what they're not saying. And sometimes it's about listening again and again and again, until the story that that person really wants to tell has been told. And for me it's about bearing witness, it's about hearing that person. It's not about solving the problem, and that's not what they want me to do. It's about being heard. Sometimes somebody will come really earnestly and start telling the story even as, as I'm making the cup of tea and it'll come tumbling out. And it can be a really, really hard story to hear. It can be about why they fled their own country. It can be about the fear of what will happen if they have to go back. And sometimes that story is really quietly, quietly told about not having enough food that night to feed their children. I really believe in the power of stories to bring about change. I've recently been doing lots of funding proposals and had to justify myself again and again about that, but I really strongly believe that. I believe in the power of change for the storyteller, who starts to believe in their story and believe in themselves, who starts to dig a bit deeper and understand the questions why. Why is this happening to me and to my community? Who starts to understand how policy impacts on that and what the solutions are for change. I believe in the change it has on policy makers who understand the humanity of what's happening, who have gone into jobs for the right reasons, but are often stuck behind a desk and no longer able to, to meet with people. So 
when I talk about my job, people often say, that must be really, really rewarding. But you know, it's not. Not always. Because I've seen, particularly in the last 10 years, poverty figures rising and rising. The Joseph Rowntree Foundation recently released the Child Poverty Figures for Scotland, which were set to eradicate child poverty and are now going up and up and set to go even higher. I've seen food banks become part of the norm. I've seen people with nothing in Scotland, with nothing. I've had texts from people who've said to me, thank you so much for buying me lunch today because I was starving. And I know that that was not an exaggeration. I've had other texts from people saying, my asylum claim has just been denied. I could be deported at any time and I don't know what to tell my daughter when she gets home from school. And I'm shaking just now because of what that does. Because it doesn't feel rewarding, it makes me feel angry. It makes me feel like breaking something. And it also makes me feel like giving up. And that's where my faith comes in. Because there's a real difference between optimism and hope. And I don't have much optimism about the future of the way our country's going. But I do have a lot of hope. There's a quote from St. Augustine that Molly Harvey, who I met in this church, who started me on this journey, and when she came to speak once, always uses. Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are, and courage to see that they do not remain as they are. And that's where my faith meets me at work. At the place where it all begins, at the place where it's not about me, where it's about being human, being heard, and being hopeful. One of my other great heroes is a lady called Lilius Graham, who worked in the, in the 60s in the Gorbals in Glasgow. She came from a very, very wealthy background. She knew the Queen Mother personally and uh, was an amazing woman who decided that she was going to come and live and work in the Gorbals. And the church, she worked for the Episcopalian Church, said, no, no, you mustn't live there. And she said, I will. And she did. And she talks, I had great pleasure working with her and, and, and hearing her story and, and documenting it. And she said, at one point, a little boy said to her, why have you come here, Miss Graham? And she said, well, she said to herself rather piously, I think Jesus told me to come. And she said, he said to her, mm, that's not what my ma says. He says you're a nutter. <laughs> my experience is a bit different to that and perhaps a bit more difficult to relate faith to what I do in my job. Um, I've got a degree in civil engineering and 30 years since I graduated and <coughs> since then I've got 20, something like 23 years experience working in the water industry. So Generally, well, I started off working on site. Um, the majority of my time has been spent working on site. Although now, a bit different, the last few years, the, the company I work for is in a joint venture with another company, and we're what's called Alliance Partners with Scottish Water, which means that we manage also the wastewater work for Scottish Water. And my job within that is managing other contractors um, which in practical terms means I spend most of my time like most people do in their work sitting at a computer at a desk 
going to meetings and occasionally managed to find a bit of time to go out and visit sites. Um, as I say, it's a bit, bit more difficult for me to relate this to my faith. Um, but I would say that I have to, to consider that, really I have to go back to the beginning of my life, to my upbringing, that both my parents, deeply committed Christians, my father, as most of you know, was a Baptist minister, and my mother was also very much involved in the denomination and ecumenical works. Um, she was quite big regionally and even nationally in the Baptist Union. So I was very much from birth brought up with um, particular moral guidance, particularly from my mother. She was the dominant person in my childhood. And this, I would say, has very much shaped shape my life and my outlook on life. So where does where does this really relate to to my work? Um, probably partly in, in terms of it, I kind of just fell into the water industry, but I suppose I could then have gone on to something else. But I felt I would rather do something that was to the, for the good of the population rather than something that was purely commercial. And also in the company that I work for, um, I mean, if you look at the construction industry, it's, it's a very broad term from sort of the, the company that I work for down to, well, you know, sort of even small, small organizations with people um, doing house renovation and, you know, sometimes disregarding all rules in terms of health and safety you know it's a broad spectrum and I suppose I've made sure that I work for a company that is sort of at the top of the food chain and tends to do things right um, an example of that the the joint venture I'm working in which five years of its existence it's won a gold award from the Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents every year. Um, the example that was given in, as regards bridge building, although I've never been a designer, I've never designed a bridge, in what we do work with designers, um, I would say it's not really quite as simple as that in that, I mean, obviously now most things are governed by computer programs, but work tends to be done by teams and nobody would have absolute responsibility, entire responsibility for anything. Um, in the actual job that I do, I would say the, the greatest concern I would have morally comes under commercial things in that we are, we're sort of in the middle of Scottish water, um, which is um, part of the public sector, then we're private sector, and then we've got contractors in the private sector working for us, and we're, both sides are trying to squeeze us as much of, as possible commercially. So sometimes there are questions arise in that as to how you make sure, how you protect your own company's finances. Um, I would say sometimes there are, there are things arise there that sometimes, you know, you could could go different ways depending on 
how strict you are in your, your moral guide. In the past, in a previous organisation organization I worked for, there was particularly one case of corruption, which I was well aware of, and, well, obviously very much avoided that, as did most people. Um, you know, it's not exclusively to Christians that people take a high moral stance. And, yeah, I would say, I mean, same as any other job, you meet a variety of people. People have very different outlooks on life. And I would always make sure that I would maintain the highest standards and you know that is that is very much influenced by my Christian upbringing um, which I've you know I've continued with maybe made some changes as time has gone on but the basic core of that comes from my the upbringing of my parents okay Thank you both very much indeed for sharing two very different spheres, but two places in which you're bringing your faith to your work. So thank you very much. We're going to sing a song, and at the end of that song is the great divide. So if you want to go and pray quietly with Holly, with your hands, please do. Don't let her go on her own. That would be awfully lonely, although she assures me she'll be fine on her own. But it would be nice if a few folk would go with her. And if you, you know, have got nothing better to do, stay and, and listen to, to me. Thank you, Paul. from Micah 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of ramps and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O Lord, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. A reading from Matthew 25. 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of my brothers, you did to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. According to the website of the foundation founded in his memory, Archbishop William Temple sought to link Christian theological concerns to everyday life, whilst connecting the church to wider society. His radical pioneering thinking played a foundational role in the formation of the British welfare state. Well, certainly the extract we heard from his writing, I think, reflects some of that. What Richard Foster calls a compassionate life is sometimes referred to as a lived spirituality or a social justice spirituality because it's firmly rooted in everyday life and typically involves active engagement with complex social and political issues. The compassionate spirituality is inspired by the incarnation, God living as a human being in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. In Jesus, we see a God who is willing to get the divine hands dirty, literally sometimes, by playing a full part in a particular society in which Jesus lived. A God who, in Jesus, spoke up for those on the margins, be they foreigners, women, tax collectors, or 
sinners. A God who could feel pain and anger, sorrow, hunger, thirst and fatigue, just like any of us. A God who wasn't a distant benefactor rewarding the faithful, but a God who was utterly compassionate. It is to this God that the compassionate spirituality responds. The God whose said loving kindness or steadfast love is unending and perpetually refreshed. It's a spirituality that approaches scripture in the light of that truth and discovers a God whose expectations of those who claim to be believers are hugely challenging and radical. Compassion isn't just being nice. It isn't even just helping those whose lives intersect with our own. It's radical and it's political, engaging with and transforming systems and structures, precisely what we see Jesus doing in his ministry. Such a spirituality isn't independent of the worship life of individuals or community. Rather, it arises from Bible study, reflection, and prayer. As we encounter God, as God's spirit stirs our hearts and minds, we become transformed more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. And we find ourselves inspired and motivated to live that out, whether it's in our own private day-to-day lives or in the public arena. Just a couple of thoughts before we move on to look at the scriptures. Firstly, whilst the compassionate spirituality may include the small-scale acts of random, I can't say it, random acts of kindness, acts of random kindness, however you say it, that Harry, the happy mouse models, we all know it's more complicated than that, much more demanding. In order to make a lasting difference, the underlying causes of suffering or injustice need to be identified and challenged and addressed. And that is hugely demanding in terms of time and energy and money. And secondly, there is the very real situation of compassion fatigue. Open a magazine, watch the television, and the request for financial donations to worthy causes are overwhelming. How do we choose? How do we choose between research into life-threatening diseases affecting people we know or supplying readily available medicines to people in some of the world's poorest nations? Should we give our money to save donkeys, to rescue kittens, or to preserve endangered species? Are bees or tigers more important? And can we really prioritize this health condition over that one? And that's all before we start on poverty, ecology, people trafficking, torture, abuse, and so on. Sometimes it can all feel too big and too complicated And because we can't do everything or understand everything, we risk doing nothing. So let's turn to the scriptures, two passages that for most of us at least will be very familiar and which are often chosen by preachers to encourage, inspire, cajole or even bully us into social action. As I read the passages again this week, I was really struck how over a lifetime I have unquestioningly accepted a very individualistic reading of them, 
that they have spoken to me. It is I who must do these things. It is I who will be judged for what I have or have not done. I think that is legitimacy in that reading, and I find it valuable. It helps me to pay attention to the compassionate part of my discipleship. But the truth is that neither of these passages was originally addressed to individuals, but rather to communities. Micah. Micah was a prophet among the people of Judah, and his message focused very much on Jerusalem, both literally the the city and as a symbol. Speaking to a nation that was outwardly devout, but had lost its way, he warns them of the inevitable consequences unless they recover their true identity and live out the faith they so religiously affirm in ceremonial worship. They're doing it. They're doing all the the religious ceremonies, but their lives aren't matching up with that. So gathered worship on its own isn't enough unless it impacts their everyday lives. What God requires is a compassionate spirituality that impacts the life not just of individuals, but of the whole nation. To the whole nation, he says, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. This, then, is a reading we can hear spoken to us as a community, people who have covenanted together to follow Jesus and to live out the values we possess, profess. Context is also really important when we turn to the New Testament reading. This parable is actually the third in a series of three that refer to the end of the age, or the final judgment. Whilst the usual emphasis, and if I'm honest, the reason I picked it, is a clear message about being compassionate to those in need, the original hearers may have heard it quite differently. The opening words set the scene. Something referred to in Greek as ta ethne are gathered before the king. King equals son of man, son of man equals Jesus. And this king, Jesus, the son of man, is going to judge them. The phrase ta ethne is usually translated as the nations. So it could be a convenient shorthand for the entire population of the world, or it could actually refer to the kind of socio-political entities that they knew at that time. So Rome, Greece, Samaria, Asia. The shock value of the story is not that some will be in and some will be out, but rather the realisation actually the people who are in and the people who are out may surprise us, may surprise them. I've spent a lot of time with this parable this week and you'll get in the third version of the sermon and it's still not entirely where I'd like it to be, but hey-ho. I've reflected on this parable as if it referred to nations as we might define them. Is it the case that the eternal destiny of a nation depends on its treatment of those who are powerless? And if it is, what does that mean? Now, I have a problem 
I have a problem because I don't believe that nations are ultimate realities. They're never finally fixed. I can just about remember British colonies in Africa being granted independence. I can remember the USSR dissolving. I can remember the reunification of Germany, and boundaries and borders are redrawn. So I can't see how any geographic nation, as we know it, has eternal significance. But we are all of us part of nation states here and now. And how we, individually and collectively, as followers of Jesus, engage with those structures is surely significant. And that will have long-term, if not eternal, implications for those who live in them. If I'd had more time and I hadn't already planned the series, I could have really got into that, but we didn't and I don't. But how do we do this? How do we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God? I think we have to remember and recognize that there isn't a one-size-fits-all response. What would be right for our little church here might be different from church down the road or a church in France or a church in Australia or whatever. But they would all be valid. For all of us and for all churches, it must mean identifying something or some things that we think are really important and learning more about them. For some people and for some churches, it will mean being actively involved in campaigning, going on marches, lobbying politicians. For others, it might be signing petitions, writing letters or emails. And for still others, it might find expression in fundraising, in volunteering, in social action projects, or maybe even in career choices. For all of us, and for all churches, it means making conscious everyday choices. So that might mean changing the way we travel, where we shop, which energy supplier we are with, or which bank we use, what we buy, what we eat. For some, it may mean speaking out about injustice or malpractice in the workplace. And for some, it may mean seeking opportunities to pay it forward to others. For all of us, and for all churches, it means recognizing that whatever our personality, whatever our preferences, whether we're together or apart, compassion is part of our spirituality and therefore has to inform how we reflect and how we pray. This week, um, in fact, yesterday, I think it was, in fact, I came across this on a friend's Twitter feed. It's a, it's a woman who is a Baptist minister and is a hospital chaplain in Milton Keynes. And it's based on the mica. It says, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. I find that 
for me, quite helpful because it can all feel too big and too overwhelming. But actually, all of us can do something together or apart. So let's just sing a song together now um, and remain seated as we do so. prayers this morning, we're going to use some newspapers. Over the week, I have been out to the shops every day and bought a different newspaper or a couple of different newspapers every day. Some of them I might choose to buy normally and some of them I almost certainly would not choose to buy normally and a few I deliberately chose not to buy at all. I'm just going to hand them out um, and in twos or threes, I would just like to invite you to look through a newspaper and find a headline or headlines that strike you in some way or a picture that strikes you. It might strike you because you hate it. It might strike you because it's challenging. It might be something that encourages you. Um, but just to share, rip, you can rip the papers up. I don't, well, I'll collect them up to get rid of them, but I'm not going to be taking them home. And, and just find something that is for you a prayer. And um, we just have a few minutes to do that. You are allowed to talk if you wish. <laughs> You just flip through them, find something that, that strikes you and use that as a focus for prayer just for a few moments.
And if you do decide you want to rip something out and bring it back and place it on the table, that, that's great as well. Just to bring those prayers to God. prayers I'm going to use part of the material offered by an organization called World News in Prayer the prophet Isaiah says as a mother comforts her child so I will comfort you you shall be comforted Jerusalem mother God how grateful we are for your constant presence in our lives as we walk as little children on this earth as we look around this world and see the awful things which happen to your children, we ask that you remind us to be more like curious babes who look at their parents with love. Help us to adore you as a newborn baby looks at their mother for the first time. Guide us on your path so that we might be ever closer to you. May you always be our mother God and may you teach us how to be the best children we can be. We know, Lord, that you are the ultimate giver of life and love. May we always come to you, dearest parent of all, so that we might receive your nourishing love this day and always. Amen. money, our week ahead, and our very selves. In the name of Christ, amen. <coughs> Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. Let's stand if we are able as we sing together.
ever-living God, as we go from here, help us in our endeavours to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, day by day, now and always. Amen.